Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst. We're a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. Where you can find us online, we're Twitter at The Thirst, Facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. Our Instagram handle is at The Thirst Pod. We're also on Podbean, thethirst.podbean.com. You can search for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify by searching for The Thirst. And you can also email us to thethirstpod at gmail.com. We've also got our blog, which we update with lots of links and other resources to things we might have mentioned in the episode and that's the thirstpod.wordpress.com this is episode 48 number 48 i've I've got nothing oh i've got some for us okay okay go ahead 48 is a song by tyler the creator tyler comma the creator 48 hours is a 1982 film starring eddie murphy it is yeah i was just gonna say i think there's one that's called 48 more hours as well oh what didn't even see that one on imdb i think so maybe you might have made that up well sounds great 48 is also a novel by james herbert sure (laughs) great uh celebrities who are 48 this is what i really care about they get better every time eminem is he really 48 he is does that make you feel really old yes it does he's substantially older than we are in my head, he wasn't, but... In my head, he wasn't, but I think because he was around when we were, like, I say substantially. It's not that 48 is old. Sorry, everyone, that's it's, not true, it's fif- but... It's 15 years older than me. Yeah, I think... I didn't think he was that much older No, me neither. But there you go. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. See, I've ref- I just can't believe that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the same age as Eminem. That seems bananas. It's a bit much, isn't it? Cameron Diaz. Yep, okay, fine. Your best friend, Ben Affleck. My boy. Mr. Donuts. Uh, Idris Elba. Gwyneth Paltrow. Is she 48? Wow. Well, that would make sense. She's the same age as Ben Affleck. 48 years of goop. Uh, Jude Law, your other boyfriend. My boyfriend, Liam Gallagher. <laughs> and that's a questionable boyfriend to have at this stage, I think. But Yeah, yeah. it is. Sorry. I just find them quite attractive. Uh, Anna Laverne Cox. That was my list. Oh, good. That's ending on a nice person there at the end. And right. Like someone rubbish. Love Do you that. mean someone Love rubbish, that. aka Liam Gallagher? As you were, kiss. Yeah, maybe. As you, LG kiss, yeah. As you were, LG. Okay, so on to some news first. Uh, a few things we thought we might cover this week. We're going to start with a good one, I think, just for sheer comedy value. It's nice to have some light relief. Vanity Fair launched their Hollywood issue this week. It's the 27th annual Hollywood issue. This time around, it's called On With The Show. And it's Vanity Fair celebrating 10 creators and stars who showed us hope and humanity in a surreal year. That's their byline, by the way. That's not me just talking about it. The issue and the shoot this year were sponsored by Adobe, which might explain the slightly surreal photo shoot that goes alongside it. That that explains a lot. Yeah, it explains a lot. So the people that, the 10 creators that Vanity Fair have earmarked this year are Zendaya, Charlize Theron, Spike Lee, Sasha Baron Cohen, Michael B. Jordan, Aquafina, Maya Rudolph, Michaela Cole, Lakeith Stanfield and Dan Levy. So they're all like a nice array of people there, mm. like all of them, I think. But the thing that in particular that really caught my eye with this particular issue. Now, the, the Hollywood issue is something I think we've discussed in the past because it's a really nice opportunity for like loads of famous 
famous people to get together and do this elaborate photo shoot and it's a nice sort of like spotlight on particular figures who've had success over the last 12 months. Obviously this year it's slightly different because of Covid and the restrictions that are in place and I think that does sort of explain why the photo shoot <laughs> alongside it is slightly surreal. By slightly surreal you mean like fully batshit. Dan Levy on a donkey. Level Dan Levy on a shit. donkey. So, you know, podcasts, notoriously a visual medium. <laughs> we'll link to this in our show notes because it's definitely worth having a look at. And I'm sure that you probably have seen it all over the internet at this stage anyway. But it's just a really odd photo shoot with a bunch of famous people in amazing outfits but they're all like photoshopped and manipulated into like different scenarios so I wrote down a few of the ones that I just found like particularly surreal but I mean the whole thing is bananas so starting with the cover Lakeith Stanfield is for some reason riding a horse but he's probably not actually riding that horse because it's 100% photoshopped no he's just sitting on like a sofa somewhere yeah, and then the others that I just pulled out because I just thought they were particularly bizarre was Charlie's Theron is in a boxing ring with a big grizzly bear. Yeah. Zendaya appears to be on like a mountainside and she's like holding up a boulder. Sasha Baron Cohen is looking lovely in a suit, but he's like hoovering the Oval Office. Aquafina appears to be on some sort of like elaborate chandelier. As you mentioned, Dan Levy is on a donkey. I just... It's all very bananas and I'd sort of not really paid a huge amount of attention to it. And then when I actually went through the spread yesterday, like I'd seen the cover and then I thought I'd actually go through the spread just to see out of interest, you know, how the the actual full editorial panned out. And I just honestly thought it was like some sort of bizarre joke. Someone had a good fun with this, didn't they? I also really like, like Michael B. Jordan reclining on a giant hand in the sky. That was pretty good i enjoyed that too it does seem like someone on photoshop just had a really really nice time on some mushrooms one weekend the only other thing i was going to add really is that the vanity fair hollywood issue is always like a mix of names that i expect and and all understand plus mm-hmm. a few randoms so like oh yeah 100 this time it's like fully expect or understand like zendaya spike lee michaela cole definitely lakeith stanfield dan levy like definitely feels like the like 2020 was the year for a lot of these people charlie's theron for the old guard even like maya rudolph like that i don't think maya rudolph would have been like at the forefront of my brain. So it's interesting, isn't it? So I saw that she was on there and was a bit perplexed. And then I realised that it's obviously because she has a starring role in Big Mouth as mm. a, a vocal performance. And then it's also she's spent a lot of time on Saturday Night Live recently playing Kamala Harris. So mm. it sort of makes sense, but it is a bit of a curveball. It did make me wonder whether they were having to struggle like booking people. This is what I thought. I was like, no offence to Maya Rudolph, but I was like, yeah, I can see this was a big year for Michaela Cole in particular, like we said. And mm. Lakeith Stanfield has been talked about loads, Dan Levy um, and Shit's Creek, like my Rudolph. Charlie Theron does feel a bit odd too. Well, I, yeah, it is very strange, isn't it? Because I thought the, the Aquafina one was a bit sort of odd to have on there. And Michael B. Jordan as well, because I haven't necessarily thought of him doing anything in the last year. I thought that as well. But then they, they do mention in the editorial that he was sort of quite publicly at the forefront of some of the Black Lives Matter stuff. Yeah. So I was like, oh, actually, you know, the, there's there might have been a, a few reasons that these people were kind of in the spotlight a lot over the past few months. But just, I mean, this happens every year. Some of them are just more random than others. 
I think that was quite funny actually is that I did get like a notification on Instagram you know occasionally it like tosses up like old posts in like some, some, some sort of like flashback thing it reminded me that I think it's the issue eight years eight or nine years ago I think there was a Vanity Fair Hollywood issue that had Ben Affleck Bradley Cooper and Emma Stone right Woo! on the front cover and I'd obviously bought it and then had like Instagram Instagram the picture of normal behavior but so I just that was quite funny the timing of it but yeah I mean they are always odd every year and I feel like we do have this sort of similar conversation of like why is that person there but yeah perhaps it's just because like celebrities generally weren't doing a huge amount of anything this year and certainly couldn't stand in a room together to be photographed so we ended up with this random stuff yeah they made the best of a sort of odd situation I suppose but we would definitely actively encourage you to, to have a look at it and make sure you have a look at the whole thing because it, it needs to be seen to be believed I think. Something that I wanted to touch on briefly that's happened in recent weeks is there's been a lot of conversation around Joss Whedon, Charisma Carpenter and other women from Buffy have spoken out publicly about the horrible treatment that they endured from Joss on the set of Buffy all those years ago so as I'm sure everyone knows Joss is a you know, a very well-known and pretty well-respected director and producer and writer, best known for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, Cabin in the Woods, and um, the Avengers and the Avengers Age of, Age of Ultron. And fans of Whedon have been hearing about his terrible behaviour for quite a few years. I think since about 2016, when his he and his wife had quite a public divorce um he and kai cole is his ex-wife and then she wrote an essay accusing him of being quote a hypocrite preaching feminist ideals but this article published in the rap in 2017 alleged that whedon admitted to cole that he'd had he'd multiple affairs across his relationship with her and then a few months later we also had ray fisher who played cyborg in justice league tweeting that he had seen Whedon and experienced Whedon engaging in gross, abusive, unprofessional and completely unacceptable behaviour during the Justice League reshoots he was involved in. So yeah, so I think we've been dimly aware of this kind of conversation for a while mm. and numerous other people who've worked with Whedon have spoken out about their onset abuse uh, from his hand and his really strange behaviour as well, some really odd things that he's said and done. But on the 10th of February, Charisma Carpenter, who plays Cordelia in Buffy and Angel, posted a statement about Whedon's abuse towards her titled My Truth. And this was across social media. So it's kind of the first time that this has been addressed publicly on the set of Buffy, apart from, I think, James Masters saying that Joss Whedon had said and done a couple of weird things, behaved a bit strangely. So Charisma Carpenter became pregnant in real life during her time filming Angel, and she was written out of the show. And she felt that that was kind of as a result of her pregnancy because Joss Whedon was really angry at her for I don't know having a child um and she only really found out that she'd been written out of the show through the press rather than being told directly and since Carpenter posted online many of her co-stars have shared their support as well so Sarah Michelle Gellar had posted on Instagram saying while I am proud to have my name associated with Buffy Summers I don't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon. Michelle Trachtenberg who played Buffy's younger sister has posted as well confirming that uh, she suffered similarly on set as well as Amber Benson who played Tara who is Willow's girlfriend said that it was a toxic environment and it's started at the top 
Other cast members who've spoken out uh, include David Boreanaz, who's sort of longtime friends with Charisma Carpenter and has spoken out publicly to support her. And so has Amy Acker, who's on Angel, James Masters, who played Spike, and Anthony Stewart Head, who played Giles. One of the really strange ones, actually, that we probably need to address as well was Nicholas Brendan's situation for multiple reasons. I was hoping you were going to bring this up. Is if only because it's like vague light relief in an otherwise horrible situation. I think Sarah and Michelle's statements went up pretty quickly after Charisma had spoken out, but then the others' responses and sort of public statements have been trickling in and everyone's been waiting to see whether Nicholas Brendan would say anything because he is notoriously quite a tricky character slash shitty person. So initially he wouldn't give a full statement. This is what he said and... I mean, it's twofold. Firstly, there's the fact that he doesn't really want to address the the situation he's been asked about. But then there is the second sentence. So his initial statement read, is a big part of my life, a very emotional part of my life, and I want to give it the proper respect and time that it deserves. Then he goes on to explain that he's about to go into surgery, quote, my anus is kind of paralysed and so is my penis, which is weird. I got to sit down to piss because I don't know if I'm shitting or pissing. <laughs> no offence to him, but if you've obviously befallen some horrible injury which has incapacitated you, I just feel like you would say, like, actually, now's not a good time. Maybe come back to me. Stop talking about your anus. What a really... And it just completely knocked, like, through me because I was... It really took some of the focus away from what was actually happening because it was like i'm sorry nicholas brendan has paralyzed his penis and his bum very very strange but he did follow up with a statement later which is all very vague and a bit strange so he he mentions that there were some quote transgressions um and he says that he loves joss and that he took the good and the bad but that's not everybody and he also says he loves charisma carpenter as well and then the bit at the end he says it's like hey make a statement my thoughts and prayers are with the victim's families i don't do that shit so i mean this is a man who has serious alcohol abuse problems anyway and has been arrested for choking his girlfriend so i'm not really sure we should be paying too much attention to him the whole thing is obviously very very grim and not surprising given what we've heard about Joss before. I think this kind of stuff has been hinted at quite heavily. But I guess in particular it resonated with me because I've been re-watching Buffy recently. The timing of it was very... Um, good's not the right word, is it? But the timing of it it's was very just topical. very odd. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very topical. It feels quite easy to remember Buffy with rose-tinted glasses, sort of as this really groundbreaking feminist show about high school girls. And, I mean, watching it now... Uh, I haven't watched it for a few years and in hindsight it obviously really isn't perfect and there's a few things in the script that are kind of like you know you just wouldn't get away with and rightfully mm. would not get away with saying that now nowadays so it's definitely a bit of its time but I mean I absolutely adore it still and I find I don't know in particular with Buffy I have this thing where I just believe in the characters and their dynamic and their relationships so close, like so intensely that I actually find it quite difficult to regard them as people outside of their characters. I feel that like that so much too. I often think 
like about you know the other stuff that other cast members have done mm. since so obviously Alison Hannigan did How I Met Your Mother and she's probably for a lot of people for an entire generation of people I assume that's probably what they remember her by but for me like she's just Willow and anytime I ever saw an op- episode of that she's just Willow it's like why is Willow acting in this TV I show I know it's like I really struggle to watch Anthony Stewart Head and anything else like he's yes. in he turns up in an episode or two of Ted Lasso which is the Apple TV show that I've sort of got really into and really mm. enjoy um, and he's in that and it's just like he I've, I have watched him in things over the years since because he's had quite a prolific career after Buffy obviously but it's just so odd because I just think like what, why is Giles here like what's Giles doing it isn't it feels really does feel the case with this show in particular and I it, because people feel so warmly and have so much love for this show it's so distressing to hear that these people didn't always have a great time and that it's clear that a lot of them are still very good friends, which yeah, is definitely. really, really lovely and shows that it wasn't just entirely hell on that set. But it's just really, it is, it's just really gutting to think that something that you care about and enjoy so much might not have been, you know, the the supportive situation that it should have been all the time. But he's just, he, I mean, he's an absolute pig, isn't he? It wasn't in any way surprising, but it doesn't make it any less hard to get your head around and hard to hear. And, you know, more power to Charisma Carpenter for feeling mm. like she wanted to speak out and show her solidarity um, alongside the Warner Brothers investigation of Joss Whedon, mm. you know, that has been going on. And it's a really tough thing to sort of have to put yourself in a public forum, especially when she's quite publicly said that her career was so significantly damaged thereafter. Yeah. So for her to sort of like put herself in the public eye again and have to sort of go over these things in a a really public setting Mm. you know that's really tough and I just really respect that actually she realized that it was something that people needed to become aware of yeah absolutely and that everyone got has had an opportunity to sort of say publicly that this is what happened and this is you know whilst they're proud to be a part of the show it was actually a really tough time and a lot of damage was done and also to have those male co-stars speak out as well in support Mm. of them is really important so yeah so that was just something that we wanted to address so onto something that I don't think we would normally bother discussing because I don't think either of us particularly care about any of the people involved I think it's like the first time that we've ever discussed these people on the podcast really brilliant and also the only reason we're we're addressing one part of this is just so i can shoehorn in talking about another part of it so friday the 19th of february tmz broke the news that kim kardashian and kanye west are divorcing after seven years of marriage kim is asking for joint legal and physical custody of the couple's four children i'm just going to remind you of their names because it's always good to know what they're called they're four north south east and west Sadly not, because that would be really good, wouldn't it? No, it's North, Chicago, Psalm and Saint. There was a loose geography themed there. And then now there's a biblical theme. Interesting. I don't think I even knew all of those. North and Chicago are the two children that Kim carried herself and then um, Sam and Saint were born through a surrogate because Kim was really unwell on both of those first two pregnancies. Mm-hmm. I love that I know that just off the top of my head like that. Wow, pregnant. well done. 
so uh, there's a prenup and neither of them are contesting it. I found this particularly interesting, actually. So Kim Kardashian will receive $1 million for every year they were married, taking the total to $6 million. She's also going to keep their Bel Air home, which was put under her name, and then all of the gifts and jewellery that Kanye West has given her, which, like, if, if that was a normal term of someone's divorce <laughs> proceedings, it would be like, oh, great, thanks. But for her, it's obviously, like, a £40,000, like, hand-painted bag and then, like, Cartier jewellery. and then So like, she's probably doubled her investment basically and got another like six mil out of the jewelry kim kardashian is an extremely wealthy woman so she doesn't really need kanye's money so i don't think this was a particular surprise for anyone they'd been living separately kanye had been spending a lot of time in his wyoming ranch um, while kim was in calabasas in california with the children the issues are said not to be contentious or ugly but their differences in lifestyle and politics were chief apparently sorry i was just i'm just thinking it's because you're both insufferable yeah 100 percent. but the thing is like i mean last summer there was that quite famous Kanye West Twitter rant that he did where he, he was talking about Kim and her family claiming Kim and her mother Chris had tried to have him locked up. Is that when he was very clearly unwell? Yeah, he also claimed that he'd been trying to divorce Kim since 2018. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> I know, right? The The couple had started dating in 2012 and then she had their first child in 2013 and then they married in May 2014. I mean, I have this like morbid curiosity with the Kardashians where I try not to engage with them because everything about them makes me feel physically unwell. Mm. I know that some people are like super invested in like keeping up with the Kardashians and that entire like... No, I can, yeah, only deal with it in like very, very small no occasionally i just like have a look and then get really irritated about what they're doing and then have to retreat but basically the reason i wanted to talk about this is because i had to start thinking about the kardashians again recently because it was announced on quite a public forum that courtney kardashian kim's sister is now dating travis barker from blink 182 I did not even I mean I know he's friends with like Machine Gun Kelly and some other weird stuff but I I don't think I truly even had realised that Travis hangs out with these people like on the regular. I forgot he even had a reality TV show to be honest. So they live they they both live in Calabasas. They're like neighbours aren't they? Yeah they live on like you know adjoining compounds or whatever so they're neighbours so I think they've had overlap there. I was also reading that before Keeping Up With The Kardashians was a thing as a TV show like he'd had dealings with the Kardashian family to give them advice because obviously his TV show Meet The Barkers which I enjoyed loved that program that was one of like the first like rich person you know famous person reality tv shows so I don't know I just found it funny they did this like really cringeworthy like Instagram post of like holding hands I really enjoyed that and also that weird note so Travis recently posted this note to Instagram that Courtney had left him it reads to lots of fun adventures may we destroy each other completely what does that mean? They have like full like Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox energy. You know how I feel about that relationship. I hope it lasts forever. I love them, truly. But what is this Travis Barker Courtney thing about? It's just weird, isn't it? I, I basically just wanted to talk about it because it's weird. I just, Travis Barker like continually fascinates me. His children are just absolutely odd. He's 10 times more basic than I think I had really accepted. Sometimes I forget what he sounds like in his speaking voice isn't he really high yeah it's never like i think it should be that always used to blow my mind whenever i was deeply uh, invested in everything that blink 22 did for a significant amount of time and it always used to like blow my mind when he'd be interviewed and he just had like a voice that like just didn't match up with his outsides it was really funny yeah which um member of 
Blink-182, did you fancy slash favouritise? Uh, Mark Hoppus, always. Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. Were you Tom DeLong? No, I was Mark Hoppus. You are Mark Hoppus as well. Yeah. Oh, Tom DeLong, overrated. You know, the alien thing, not my vibe. No, I really like Mark. I still like Mark now. I follow him on Twitter. He's great. Great dad. She seems really cool. He seemed more normal and adjusted, didn't he? I love that we did, a, yeah, that epic swear. It wasn't really about Kim and Kanye, was it? No, I just it was about Travis about Courtney. and Courtney. Courtney, yeah. I'm but, sure, you know. like all of his past relationships with Rita Ora and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton, this will go wonderfully, and they'll be together forever. Imagine if they get married. Oh, uh, again, he doesn't need another marriage. I just, yeah. So we, I wish Kim Kardashian well on her divorce. I hope Kanye feels better. Hasn't feels better and has a nice time living in Wyoming. And I hope that Courtney and Travis don't, I don't know, destroy each other as they seem to do Don't destroy each other completely. So this segment of the podcast this week seems to have the theme of relationships, really relationship films. Why not? We've got two things on very extreme ends of the spectrum. So first we're going to talk about To All the Boys, colon, Always and Forever, which is a teen romantic comedy film directed by Michael Fimognari, who also directed uh, the previous film, To All the Boys, colon, P.S. I Still Love You. Weirdly, uh, I mean, I don't know much about Michael Fimognari, but I I did a little wiki search, and he's done a bunch of cinematography work on horror films in particular, and has worked on most of Mike Flanagan's projects, which is just so, uh, such a far cry from this film. It's really funny. strange. Isn't it funny? Great trivia. So this film is based on Jenny Hahn's uh, 2017 novel, Always and Forever, Lara Jean, or rather, Always and Forever, colon, Lara Jean. You're really enjoying the grammatical... Really satisfying punctuation here, yeah. And it's a sequel to All the Boys, colon, P.S. I Love You. And of course, it is the third and final instalment in the To All The Boys film series. So this film stars Lana Condor as Lara Jean and Noah Centineo as Peter, alongside other cast members such as Janelle Parrish, Anna Cathcart, John Corbett, Madeline Arthur, etc, etc. So for those who may not know, the trilogy centres around Lara Jean Song Covey, who is a shy teenager who writes five letters, ones she never planned to send, to boys that she has had crushes on um, throughout her time at school. And in the second film, she is dating one of those crushes, Peter Gavinsky. So in this third instalment, we're in the senior year of high school and Lara Jean is returning from a family trip to Korea and is having to consider her college plans, which may or may not be with Peter. So the film was released on the 12th of February on Netflix. And uh, I think you've mentioned the To All The Boys films before, because I seem to remember you reviewing it briefly in an earlier episode a couple of years ago. And I took truly took some time to catch up. I had no intention of watching these films. Anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know that it's not usually the sort of thing I go in for. Before we go into this film in particular, do you want to talk a bit about your relationship to the series as a whole? So I was fully caught up in the original To All The Boys I Loved Before Hysteria when it arrived on Netflix. I Mm. haven't read the book series. It's something that I do have at my place of work, um, but I haven't actually bothered to read them, not beforehand and not since. And I think it's just because I really, really, really did become like entirely consumed by that first film at the same time as everyone else, I definitely was part of that like 
slightly annoying internet wave of like <laughs> you have to watch this film it's amazing um and i definitely did like watch it the opening weekend or day it came out completely got obsessed with it like fell very much in love with peter kavinsky as a character like thought lara jean was just a delight thought the whole thing looked amazing just loved the story loved the concept thought it was brilliant and it was something that like just filled me with such joy when i watched it the first time around and i've watched it a couple of other times since and I just think that like as a sort of entry point into what is then a trilogy it's such a good teen drama and it's just sort of different as well you know it's brilliant to have a an Asian American lead the cast itself is just ace and I think it's just the whole thing I thought was just really wonderfully constructed then obviously last year at the beginning of the year the second installment came out and I will confess that I didn't get round to watching it at all until probably a week and a half before the, the most recent film came there out there was other stuff going on like pandemics and shit 100% and I think it I saw that it didn't get as much of a rapturous applause from people because I think the first one had been so good I think it was a little bit of a disappointment and having now watched it myself I will concede that actually it's just definitely not good and I didn't particularly like it's fine it's it's a nice watch but it's just nef- not as good as the first film and I think that's the problem if when you've got something that does have such a splash and has such an impact and everyone gets really caught up in it it's probably not gonna sort of live up to its expectations mm. so that's I suppose my relationship to the series and when I saw that this final installment was coming up it did sort of like hurry me up to watch the second edition so I was all caught up and I was sort of looking forward to it in a weird way because I just think I wanted the distraction and really hoped it would be like a nice transportive like oh here's this parallel universe where like everything's nice and you're a teenager yeah it is just completely charming isn't it especially that first film I remember you watching it and I remember Vaughn being really into it and all of that kind of great buzz around it. Never watched, hadn't intended to at all, really. Um, thought I might watch it one day, but not. it wasn't at the top of my list. And then I think there was like a night when, this was a couple of years ago, when I wasn't sleeping and was really stressed and anxious. And so I put that on to watch and it was like a really lovely, soothing balm for when I was feeling sad and I just found it completely charming and everyone was really, really likeable in it. And as you say, I felt this, I watched the second film just before this third one and second film feels much flimsier compared to the first. So kind of was slightly worried that this film could be worse, that would just be going on a sliding scale and that the first one would be kind of untouchable and they just get progressively worse, which often happens in sort of series, don't they? Like they, they yeah. can end up getting weaker as they go on. But um, as I'm sure we'll discuss, I think we both really enjoyed it. It was surprisingly good. I guess there's there's like nothing unexpected about this series, which is why I kind of love it as well. Is that it's a fairly safe watch, but doesn't that doesn't diminish its charm at all? It's kind of safe because you can kind of predict what is likely to happen in each mm. film, and there's also only a very temporary sense of sort of distress or kind of turmoil in each film even the sort of heartbreak or relate you know bumpy relationship elements it's it's quite light-footed in that way so it's even though it's got some quite important themes in it it doesn't feel like you're watching anything too heavy and I think you kind of know what Lara Jean and Peter are going to be facing in this film and I think you probably can safely assume where they're likely to be together at the end of the film. Mm. But again, it's, I don't know, it's just very likeable, very charming. Charming's my kind of word for it. So going into this third film then, 
What are your feelings about the kind of developing relationship between Lara Jean and Peter um, in this film in particular? I think for me, my criticism of the second film is that they are thrown into this like love triangle scenario. No one cares about the love triangle. Yeah, they sort of throw in, try and throw in like this disruption, you know, this like bump in the road for them. And I just found it really hard to get my head around. Not because it was like not something that would happen because it fully is, but it just feels a bit like you've got such good chemistry between Lara Jean and Peter that to throw in this like needless conflict of someone else who was perfectly fine. Lovely boy, but he's not Peter Kavinsky, is he? Like it's not... Absolutely not. So I think going into this film, I was looking forward to like a bit of a recalibration and a bit of a refocusing on Lara Jean and Peter's relationship. And I think I knew that it was going to be because I think I'd read somewhere actually about how it was going to be focusing on them, like having to make their college decisions, Mm, which mm. is like such an like tried and tested teen movie trope, isn't it? And it's real, though, as well. It's very it's a very tangible thing that lots of people have to go through very relatable in that sense so I sort of knew that that was going to be like the main area of contention I suppose and I imagined that it would be a case of like are they going to go to different universities are they going to try and go to the same place like it was sort of I don't know well trodden path I think really but I was just really hoping that it was going to be a bit of a return to form for the first installment and that there would just be like more of them together because I Mm. think that was the thing that I felt the second film lacked is that it took Lara Jean and put her in a different scenario with someone that wasn't with Peter Kavinsky and Mm. like as much as I do consider like having a crush on Noah Centineo a bit of a curse he's so charming he's really charming I wish I wasn't I was quite stubborn about the fact that I just wouldn't understand this Noah Centineo thing and outside of Peter Kavinsky I don't no neither do I in this film yeah, I like him far more than I would really like to publicly admit. He plays a teenage boy very convincingly, I think. He does, but he's he's sort of but he occasionally flies in the face of those kind of teen romance jock stereotypes, doesn't mm-hmm. he? He's he does actually have Lara Jean's best interests at heart. Yeah. Yeah, he's very considerate of her, especially in this film, which was like oh, just, you know, really, really lovely. But to your point as well about that second film is, I don't know, one of the things I I didn't like, well, not didn't like, but in this film, you get to see Lara Jean put her own future ahead of her relationship as well. So she's making a choice for herself with NYU. So we're all fully on board with Lara Jean and Peter, like dream couple. We all want them to be together forever. But at the same time, that isn't, in this film, that isn't her entire world. Yeah, I really, really liked that aspect as well. There were some really big milestones to hit and some big things to consider in this film. And it wasn't all just like, but Peter, but Peter, but Peter. I really liked that. And also the the family holiday that they take. That was lovely. Yeah, so LJ gets to sort of explore her Korean-American identity in a way that we haven't really seen before. So she's really learning more about herself, which I just really appreciated They just felt like very rounded characters in this film. Yeah, I think the thing I really enjoy about this film in particular, and then also I think generally the whole series, is that like Lara Jean does have her own autonomy and you do get Mm. a sense of her as an actual well-rounded character. And I think as this with this final film, I think it would have been really, really easy to just say to just to position her as someone that like wants to do everything that Peter, Mm. you know, is doing. And that that is a plot line throughout the film. But Mm -hmm, actually, mm -hmm. you know, it's quite significant that she does come to realise that she needs to put her best interests at heart. 
And also Peter wants her to do that as well. And I think that's why he is an interesting character because I think, like you said, it would be really easy to make him this like very stereotypical jock American boyfriend. Mm. But actually, you know, there's a particular tender moment where like she's sort of rattling off something she's done and she's worried he's going to be angry and she doesn't want to upset him. But he like stops her and he asks if she's okay. And that's like such a significant Mm -hmm. but small act that Mm -hmm. suggests that actually like regardless of whether he's going to be upset whether you know he's angry at her whether he's having to sort of rethink all of the plans that he's made for them in her head like Mm. he he ultimately does care if she's all right and i just think that you know it's just brilliant to see that actually like she's putting her interests first rather than anyone else's Mm. as a former young person i can say that i none of my boyfriends (laughs) were that considerate like it sounds like it would be a basic thing to do like oh right you know oh he's considerate of her feelings and puts them first like great what you know how low is the bar but when you're a young person especially you do you know you get really wrapped up in your own i don't know in your own head and your own feelings and he almost gets carried away a couple of times and then he manages to bring it back i thought that was great was there anything else about this film that you really liked or really didn't like? Um, I liked the entire New York adventure aspect oh, of it. That so was really much. nice. Any excuse. I did like the sort of making of plans for the future. It's sort of quite nice to imagine them beyond high school. Mm. I also liked as well, I think that, you know, you mentioned her family background and her home setting. It was kind of nice to have that sort of like subplot of like mm. how... Lara Jean and her sisters were like allowing their dad to move on and to actually acknowledge that like he is he is his own person and yeah he's their dad and he you know loves all of them and he loved their mum but she's not with them anymore Mm. Um, and actually he he deserves to have his own life outside of just looking after them and I thought that was just really nice and probably worth acknowledging because it just felt like a really sort of nice thing to sort of have going on alongside Lara Jean's own kind of configuring Mm. her own relationship it's sort of interesting to sort of think about how they're dad is sort of going mm. through his own stuff as well it's nice isn't it they're kind of they're all characters like the young the young people are all characters who are you know they are very young but they are also like quite mature and considerate of each other in a way that's really nice to watch it feels very contemporary in that sense yeah I think, yeah i think it can be often the case that like the idea of like what teenagers are like and what they're capable of doing and mm. processing and you know the feelings that they may or may not have i think often can be dismissed mm. or like downplayed as like less important or just i don't know not as developed but i think actually like this series in particular does give credence to the fact that like young people are often quite coherent and you know have got their opinions and and things they want to do and i think it asserts that in a way yeah yeah absolutely one other thing i wanted to address is probably the 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 least realistic element of the entire film is the idea that Peter Kavinsky would get into Stanford on a lacrosse scholarship (laughs) yeah and seemingly not have to ever study so I did laugh at that yeah I I had jotted down that I just absolutely didn't buy that there's a lot in the film regarding like the intricacies of their relationship which I absolutely don't buy either because (laughs) like Peter Kavinsky like screams horny teenage boy of course he does he's really nice and respectful but i also just think that he would be like he's not the one shutting her down is he but i like no i think you should wait it's great like it's not realistic (laughs) it's what we wish would happen with everyone's teenage son but i don't know how realistic it is 
And I think the other thing is just the, I don't know, you you touched really eloquently upon like the almost hyper reality of it and how you mm. have to suspend all your disbelief whilst watching it. And I think that was the thing for me is that like you get to the end of it and like decisions have been made and like the seeds have been set for various different things. And part of me is like, oh, yes, I definitely want to remember them in this particular way because this is how their lives are going to pan out. And then like part of me is thinking like, well, I reckon by Christmas all the things will be different. So. <laughs> Again, judging from my own experience as a, a young person my um extremely extremely important first relationship that had gone on for a couple of years before university disintegrated within about four weeks of going to uni like absolutely like went up in flames the logistics of it for them in particular so they're both from Oregon he's going to Stanford in um just outside of San Francisco she's going to New York for NYU like from a logistic point of view it's 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 um if it's not happening between Norwich and Reading it's not happening between Stanford and NYU well that was going to be my final question was do we think they will last no 100% not in the cruel light of 2021 they wouldn't but in the PS I love you universe of course they're gonna be together forever they're going to be together forever and she's going to have like an amazing career which he's going to like fully support and be like a house husband and like raise their children and be nice in an ideal in the in the actual real world i think they'd probably like <laughs> i don't know go home for christmas and probably break up i don't have know. cheated on each other at the uni like icebreaker parties no it wouldn't be like that we're they're going to live together forever they're going to be happy and we're going to be able to revisit these films or at least the first and the third ones regularly and feel really warm and fuzzy from them so uh if if anyone hasn't watched this or any of the other films yet please do because they're just little gems really aren't they they're lovely they are lovely right so from one netflix relationship film to another oh seamless you know what it's true though isn't it you pointed out both both relationship films, one slightly better than the other. So um, Malcolm and Marie. So Malcolm and Marie is written, produced and directed by Sam Levinson and stars John David Washington and Zendaya, who are both producers and co-finance the film as the title characters. So the project was the first Hollywood feature to be entirely written, financed and produced during the COVID-19 pandemic, with filming taking place in secret in June and July last year. In September 2020, Netflix acquired distribution rights to the film for $30 million, outbidding companies like HBO, A24 and Searchlight Pictures. And then Malcolm and Marie was released on a limited release in cinemas in January the 29th this year before being released digitally on February the 5th on Netflix. So Sam Levinson, if you're not familiar with him, he's best known for his work on HBO's Euphoria, which also stars Zendaya. He's also the son of director Barry Levinson, who's known for films like Rain Man and Good Morning Vietnam, amongst others. And Sam Levinson's debut feature film was Assassination Nation, which was released in 2018. So the synopsis for the film is a filmmaker named Malcolm and his girlfriend Marie get into a nightlong argument after his movie premiere. The at times abusive and monologue heavy back and forth involves, among other things, his forgetting to thank her for his contributions to his project, which centres on a recovering addict much like Marie. So the incident in the film has roots in reality. Sam Levinson himself forgot to thank his own wife at the premiere of his first film on which they'd both worked. Assassination Nation received very mixed responses from critics. In Malcolm and Marie, Malcolm 
particularly references on multiple occasions a white lady from the LA Times who many have concluded is a reference to Katie Walsh who's a critic from the paper who in 2018 gave the film a poor review and I guess the film really came about because filming of Euphoria was grounded due to Covid and Zendaya had asked Sam Levinson if it would be possible to use the time to work together on a much smaller project. I think initially she'd envisaged it being filmed at her own house in Los Angeles but it was then expanded outwards and then Malcolm and Marie is the uh, fruits of those labour I suppose so I feel like when this was announced and when the trailer dropped we were kind of quite looking forward to it what did you sort of expect in advance so when the announcement came when the cast was sort of flagged when we saw the trailer how did you kind of react to all of that I was really looking forward to this from the trailer we've got two really great actors love Zendaya obviously really like John David Washington and what I've seen so far although I think the films that he starred in haven't always been my favourite but I did really like Black Klansman so two great actors interesting setup sort of almost like a play a really tight and focused look at a relationship in turmoil over one night and it's filmed in a really striking way as well so you know you've got the black and white just yeah really really I thought this was going to be simple and really effective um I really enjoy euphoria as well and think that is so well put together so my hopes were really high and I feel like you kind of felt the same initially as well before the first critical reviews came in (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like you, really, I'm a big fan of JD and um, Zendaya. I really love her in Euphoria and also a big fan of her work in the Spider-Man films that she Mm. starred in alongside Tom Holland. So I was really intrigued when I'd seen some sort of pictures of them filming it. Um, And then when that trailer dropped, I was like so unbelievably hyped because they're two people whose work I love. I just think they're brilliant performers. I think they're extremely gorgeous as well. Oh yeah, they are both smoking hot. And because the film is shot in black and white it was a very stylish trailer it just looked like the type of thing that actually you'd mentioned that it seemed quite play like and I was really hoping for that kind of vibe to just two actors getting to do what they're really good at on this kind in in this Mm amazing surrounding so I was I was definitely looking forward to it I think it was very interesting when the initial critics Mm -hmm. reviews came out I vividly remember actually I I was either doing something at home or I had been out for my daily walk and I remember like the embargo lifted online lord it really was like an avalanche wasn't it it really was an avalanche so obviously the embargo was up and then everyone was allowed to start publishing their reviews and I think prior to that it had only been screened probably a small amount and I hadn't really seen much sort of writing online but when the embargo lifted it was like an avalanche of people whose opinions I sort of genuinely kind of you know respect Mm. and consider it wasn't just sort of you know people whose opinions I absolutely disregard it was like a really across the board this sort of critical avalanche of people not particularly enjoying it for a variety of reasons which I'm sure we'll come on to so I was really apprehensive ahead of that really and I think I don't want to necessarily speak for you but I I get the sense that you were of similar feeling to me in that I had gone from like absolutely wanting to watch this as soon as I physically could and being really excited that I was going to get to watch it at home soon to like (laughs) I need to watch this because we've said we're going to cover it and we were looking forward to it but I absolutely can't be bothered I got that vibe from you very much April we both put it off for weeks it was like we should watch it this week oh yeah we should watch it this week. Yeah. And then we <laughs> eventually got there because we knew what was coming. 
really glad that we did end up doing it in sync together mm. at the same time because I think otherwise I just would have never have watched it. Yeah, I think to actually get through all of it, I just I would have not been concentrating in the slightest if I'd been by myself and not messaging you. I think I would have just ended up doing different things and not paying attention. Yeah, and for me, it's made me reflect quite a lot about how this often happens with Netflix-specific films, uh-huh. I've noticed, where it'll be this like big announcement of a project and I'll really be like, oh, cool, I like that filmmaker or I like that actor, I'm going to watch it. And then it's like at my disposal and it will get panned or it'll be yeah. like oh yeah it's not that good it's probably not. and I just won't do it we had exactly the same thing with Mank at the end of last <laughs> we year we did that was in black and white as well yeah I you know love David Fincher and should have been really hyped to have at my disposal this like new David Fincher film but I just absolutely put it off no. and then only did it because I thought we might cover it and then we need like we just didn't. <laughs> we couldn't be bothered it was, it's, so it's, it's quite a polar polar responses I think really mm. to have gone from like being super super hot yeah. on it to being like mega mega cold so that was our kind of advanced build-up so when we finally got to it we sat down phone's ready we're gonna do this it's only an hour and a bit long let's go so what what was your reaction to finally watching it what did you take from the film itself what did you think of Malcolm and Marie's relationship the whole shebang where to begin okay so someone and now I feel really bad because I can't remember who it was I'll have to look it up and we can link it Someone called this film as like the personification of the artists in a struggle. And you can imagine them envisioning, you know, when they set to make this film, they could, they, you know, really envisioned Malcolm as this really jumped up egotistical, you know, and Marie is the kind of the, the voice in the background that's making you feel ineffective and inauthentic and sort of lacking originality. And so you've got like the confidence and also this yeah nagging anxiety in the background. And, also this comment this wider commentary on sort of the industry and critics and directors and hollywood um and you've also got this thread about a young woman feeling used by you know quite an adult man in an industry and but she's also kind of using him too and there's all these very sort of profound threads and the acting is obviously very good because as you said Zendaya and uh, John David Washington are great actors but I, from watching this and from quite early on you could just see like no evidence of why these two people should be together there's almost no sense of like this is this is what it's like for them when things are great and they're in unison with each other it really is just a slightly excruciating almost two hours of this verbal sparring which is just really relentless and loud and cyclical and it is pretty much down to the fact that the screenplay is excruciating like euphoria is so good what has gone on here it's really interesting isn't it because i think i'd like properly like braced myself for an onslaught of something that i like wasn't going to enjoy and then like right from the get-go within probably like the opening sequence I think Mm -hmm. is brilliant you've got them coming home from this event you can sense the tension Mm -hmm. already you know like Marie's not giving good vibes Malcolm's like completely on a high he's like dancing around this amazing house in this you know on a on a post premiere high and then like almost immediately the arguments start And then it's like relentless. It really is. So relentless. And I think what I found particularly striking is that I began immediately 
like you said, to just feel like, why are they together? Why am I, as the viewer, being involved in this argument? I just want them to stop. Why haven't they gone to bed? Yeah, just go to bed. Stop eating fucking macaroni cheese and go to bed. I do think that it does sort of probably show that how, you know, sometimes arguments can kind of just go from you're bickering and then you're Mm. like, fine. And then there's still that weirdness and then someone will say something. Loops round, doesn't it? Like the cyclical nature is obviously very deliberate as in you keep going over old ground. But there truly did feel like there they were not making any progression. But you no. also just couldn't see what things were like when they were good. Why am I bought into these people? Like, I don't know or care about them at all. I think that's the problem is you don't get a, a, any context for what they're like previously to that. You don't get a sense of like, here they are out together or here they are when things are like good and great and fine mm. and normal. And then this is the like toxic side of stuff and I think that was particularly like I just had no investment in their relationship because my immediate gut was just like you're both being insufferable just go to bed and stop shouting at each other and I think there is lots going on in there about the power play between Malcolm and Marie Mm -hmm. and in their relationship so he's obviously she's angry at him because he didn't say thank you to her at premiere for a film which directly refers to her life and things that she's been through Mm -hmm. she tells him that then he throws it back at her and says that it's not and then begins to like give her this like litany of other people's lives that it's actually referring to in in order to make her feel bad that she's having a go at him and there's lots going in there about you know like she's angry that she wasn't able to be in the film like he wouldn't let her audition for the film and then there's that sort of section where like she pretends to do something quite you know dramatic and aggressive and then she's mm. acting and he's like well, why why didn't you do that in the in the audition and it's just it's just this relentless back and forth but for me there was just like little to no payoff whatsoever no. and i just found it really like the monologuing that malcolm does god for it just goes on for Ever. It's really, really, really like needlessly lengthy. And it was during those periods that I think for me it became like abundantly clear mm-hmm. that like everything that Malcolm was saying, whether it was about like film history, film critics, you know, all aspects of the of the industry, the technical side, like all of that, it just felt like he was being used as this mouthpiece yeah. for Sam Levinson to air his grievances. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the real problem for me. And I think it's also what why it's been really striking to like read and unpick the critical reaction because so much of the, f- of the film is basically pointed and targeting the critics who've don't like Sam Levinson's work, mm-hmm. see that his work is flawed for a variety of reasons. So A, you're never going to get a bunch of critics <laughs> think that this film works when you're essentially spending two hours being extremely critical of them and their career and, and their entire You don't come out as the bigger person, do you? No, not at all. And then, you know, so consequently, every single review for the film is basically going like, well, what's the point in this film? Like, no, Mm -hmm. there's nothing, like, it's it's not great. It's bad, blah, blah, blah. So it becomes this, like, again, this other cycle. And Sam Levinson's reactions to people's reactions to it have been so interesting about (laughs) it because I think people have not only picked up on the fact that, like, he's being very critical about critics, essentially because critics don't like his work, 
work. Mm-hmm. So rather than like, I don't know, going to therapy or just like writing it all down and packing it away and going through a He's process, made a film about how much he hates critics. That was like the review I logged on Letterboxd was just basically like, you've made an entire film here about how you personally cannot mm. handle criticism of your work. But mm. the thing that I found really striking, and I know that I've read lots of really interesting pieces about this is that like it's one thing to just have your main lead do all of this but it's another when you've got like a fairly notable person of color and you're using him as your mouthpiece Mm -hmm. as a as a way of like sounding off and because there are a lot of the things that malcolm is saying in the film are addressing like representations of like black culture on film and and you know the way that critics react to that and the worth and the worthiness they put on all of that and and those are like some of the things he says are like really valid points but then I just think it's really undermined by like everything else that the film does and everything else that Sam Levinson does in the script it can't balance and do both you can't have a script that so clearly draws from Sam Levinson's own experiences and feelings as you say which is something I picked up on in the film having not known the background information Mm -hmm. like some of the things that talked about in this film and in the script you know are reflect real situations that he's been in I didn't know that and I could still tell that this was like a very personal yeah as you say a mouthpiece moment it's not subtle which is I don't know fine to an extent I guess other directors have done it but then you've got this weird balance that is balanced with a discussion of race that you would hope comes from Zendaya and John as the producers. It is a balance that doesn't, it doesn't work, I don't think. It it comes off as feeling really strange, doesn't it? It's a very strange combination. And the tone of it's completely all over the place yeah. as a result, I think, because it's sort of like, you're never really sure if you're supposed to be siding with Malcolm about the critical response to his work as a black director, mm-hmm. or if you're supposed to be siding with Marie as the person yeah. who's life is essentially being leached on by her partner for creative benefit like there is just no it tonally for me it just Mm. felt off yeah um i think you linked me to that and uh did you link me to the the new york times article with zendaya and zendaya is saying that you know she's read about this reaction to the film and she feels a bit like their agency has been stripped away because she was very much co finances and producers of this film with john david washington as well as sam and that you know they feel like people criticizing this you know makes them sound like they're just a passive mouthpiece without being Mm. involved but I think my problem is that it just Sam's petty grievances really undermine what's being said through Malcolm and Marie's characters like on behalf of and it just yeah it doesn't work. There was a really interesting piece on The Guardian written by Robert Daniels who Mm. addresses whether it's appropriate for Sam Levinson to sort of like use these two particular actors to air his grievances. It just didn't Um, seem right did it? No it didn't at all and there were like there's quite a few parts of it that I just found were really really interesting but there's just one thing um, one particular passage that says there are too many instances of Levinson speaking through Malcolm to name which speaks to the repetitiveness of Malcolm and Marie but in every disingenuous instance of Levinson airing his laundry through this black man is the hope that white critics will see enough of themselves in the LA Times journalist to therefore go easy on Levinson's present film Mm. and that's what really made me uncomfortable that like he essentially says that he 
That undercurrent detracts from many of the saleable points that he brings up, white critics approaching black art through the lens of importance mm. rather than black art being important in and of itself. And that those were the parts where I thought that actually, like, the sections of the film that I imagined were something that were probably quite important to Zendaya and John yeah, David Washington well, exactly. about, about the way that actually, like, you know, black art in particular is considered. Mm-hmm. I imagine, you know, having their viewpoint on that in particular, I imagine that is something that they probably wanted to really, really get across. Mm-hmm. And it's there, it's just surreal surrounded by this like clouding of everything else that Sam Levinson needs yes. to get off his chest so yeah. subsequently for me particularly it just felt that it undermines it it just can't do both it really can't do both it does make it like such a, a horrible unbalanced thing doesn't it it's just it doesn't work the waiting just definitely like wasn't there for me no. and I think subsequently it's why it just ended up feeling like a massive slog and like some like I was being punished mm. for no reason and there was like no no reward no payoff other than that was there anything that you liked about it at all I mean aesthetically it's obviously glorious like the black and white and the the setting and the wide shots of the house and the landscape and then you know and just be- you know it looks stunning and my last bullet point is I liked their outfits so there you go that's pretty much looks lovely but when you get to the scripts it just absolutely falls apart yeah they both look brilliant it it does look great the cinematography of it is wonderful it does have that like play vibe of like two people kind of you know facing off in this amazing surrounding which is brilliant but i just think i don't even know if hand on heart i could recommend it to anyone oh no i wouldn't to be honest i like watching films that are like flawed and potentially bad but for me this just felt like an absolute chore to watch there's a huge error of judgment by sam levinson there i think that just really as you say like undermines the whole thing and kind of makes it like like excruciating in some parts to watch for me it basically confirms what the critics say about him Mm -hmm. which is probably not what his intention was but unfortunately is the case I think I feel like most of the critics as you say have been on board the same way which doesn't Mm. always happen I mean there were there were a few that liked it more than others but I think everyone who found flaws in this film found flaws for the same reason and it yeah it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb (laughs) that it didn't work no definitely not so I think for me it's uh, definitely best avoided it's a no from us on to something that has been um, a very fierce topic of conversation online in recent weeks and something that we've wanted to cover for a little while. And that's the New York Times presents Framing Britney Spears, which finally arrived on UK streaming last week. It dropped in the US on the 5th of February. And as I said, it's had you know generated tons of discussion and headlines since. It's directed by Samantha Stark and produced by Jason Stallman, Sam Dolnick and Stephanie Prius. So the premise is that in 2021, at the age of 39, Britney Spears, who is one of the most successful pop stars in the world and has an estimated net worth of $59 million, remains legally under the control of her father, Jamie Spears, since 2008. So this this documentary, Framing Britney Spears, is posited as an investigation of this conservatorship that Jamie Spears has over his daughter. But it also feels, when you've watched it, much more like a re-examination of her career and her celebrity and her personal struggles throughout her three decades in show business. So Brittany and her family were not interviewed in the documentary, but we do get to hear from a lot of people who have been involved in her career at different points. So there's uh, former Jive Records marketing executive, 
Kim Kamen. There's Paparazzo, David Dano Ramos. And um, there's also Spears' longtime family friend and former assistant, Felicia Colotta. They also interview a lot of fans involved with the Free Britney movement. So I think if you're a fan of Britney Spears or you followed her at any point, you may well be aware of a lot of the interview clips that are in this documentary. There's lots of press moments that are obviously very firmly stuck in all of our minds. So there might not be a huge amount here that is new, I guess for the New York Times as well, if it's been positioned as a sort of an, an investigative piece, it might not be that investigative actually. But it does offer a really op- interesting opportunity to reflect on Britney's career and the systemic misogyny that's dogged her from day one, really, and this absolutely insane world of celebrity. So before we kind of dive into the documentary, what is your, I mean, your relationship to Britney Spears is going to be very similar to mine, to mine, I imagine, because we're only like a year or so apart. Okay, so Baby One More Time came out when I was 11. At the time, I was very much a boy band person. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being deeply invested in anything that a female singer would do was just largely like not a thing it's not to say that i hadn't really enjoyed like female pop acts before was a big spice girls fan was really into bewitched and all saints but for me like solo pop singers weren't really my thing i was just fully fully obsessed with boy bands it was the bands wasn't it it was like yeah the, the era of boy bands in particular absolutely so i remember the single coming out and then kind of like really enjoyed all of those bops thereafter i really liked those first two albums which i think mm-hmm. i did own on cd mm-hmm. And then I guess subsequently, I've kind of just dipped in and out ever since. So maybe one more time and then Oops, I Did It Again. Those first two records were Mm -hmm. kind of where for me. So I wasn't necessarily a super fan, but I was like aware of her her presence and like liked those songs. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose after that, I feel like it's definitely something that we'll come to interrogate as we go on with this conversation, I think. But like Britney Spears has always just been like a figure of celebrity culture, hasn't she? Subsequently, like since she's sort of been a public figure, she's just been at the forefront of kind of like the what it means to be a celebrity, what it means to be a female celebrity, what it means to sort of, I don't know, be in the press. So she was definitely always someone I was aware of, kind of would like, you know, if I ever saw Britney News, would definitely read about it. But I think the timing of that first single and like where my interests were were at that time and then the, mm. where they progressed afterwards obviously I then kind of progressed on to like new metal and like pop punk and then like got into like you know like punk and hardcore and everything yeah. thereafter so I sort of like touched upon her knew who she was liked those songs and then went off in this completely different direction and I suppose I feel like it is very similar for you oh yeah it absolutely is I can really vividly remember buying baby one more time as like a cd single when I was visiting my grandparents in Norwich so So very much remember that. Oh, so and, you know, just being obsessed with the video and really into those first two albums and then kind of getting to the point, as you say, where I was kind of diverging from pop music, as it were, and then being aware of all those very public moments for her over the coming years Mm. and kind of her marriage and things like that. And then kind of swerving background when I got a bit older to kind of really appreciating her pop music as some of the best pop music of that time. Like those singles are amazing. They're so, so good. Um, And that's something that you kind of come, I don't know, I've come back to over the past, like, I don't know, 10 years or so. I've definitely done the same thing. Just, yeah, really, really appreciate her kind of style of entertainment and her music. So I think we both come from a place of being very familiar with her career and, you know, being able to 
understand like a lot of these key moments in the documentary so nothing is apart from maybe the conservatorship which I didn't I, I knew bits about from the Free Britney movement, but you know I didn't know in detail. But pretty much most of most of what's being shown in this documentary, in terms of clips and those key moments, is fairly known to both of us. So I've kind of, I've got a few points that I wanted to discuss with you. I've kind of broken it up a little bit because I think there are a few different things that this documentary touches on, which aren't just about this conservatorship and her relationship with her dad. So you've got the story of kind of the early rise of Britney and it talk, the documentary talks about her early talent and how she had this magical formula, as you mentioned, to be a kind of a lone successful pop star singer in a male dominated pop genre. And the documentary kind of asks, you know, why is she so successful over others? And it's framed as kind of, it's partly because she was, you know, such a genuine personality, such a genuine person. And she kind of began as all American. And then she wasn't afraid as she was growing up to start exploring her sexuality through her performances and her appearance. And then as a result, she's obviously then punished by the industry for, you know, being quite public with her with with her sexuality and with her body and we have these clips of very well-known and established journalists so like Diane Sawyer is accusing her of sort of upsetting a lot of mothers in the country and you even have the wife of the governor of Maryland saying that you know if she had the opportunity to shoot Britney Spears she would because she's been such a terrible influence on her kids that she would actually murder her so yeah, there's this idea that she, you know, is once she's labelled as some sort of bad influence, everything she does then is just tarred with that label too. So she's a bad girlfriend, she's a bad wife, bad mother. And this is how it kind of frames that side of her public image. And I mean, I don't know how you felt like about that. I found it a bit strange in that they talk about this, yeah, this idea of like the all-American girl growing up and just wanting to be herself. But they also made it really clear in the documentary through clips from interviews that she was like super heavily sexualized from the very outset, as in like when she was a young child. It was really jarring to see a lot of that really early footage, especially mm. on like the talent show side of things. Oh, where man. There was that scene where she was asked if she had a boyfriend and she's probably about six or seven. She's in there. Yeah, she's 10. She's 10. 10. That's what I mean. Like, like why Why are you asking a 10-year-old that? And I, I think it's been really interesting to re-watch a lot of those things, mm. like clips from, I don't know, the press, you know, MTV, like all, all of that stuff. It's really mm -hmm. interesting to re-watch it as an adult and kind of like have have had a concept of it from the time. So to, be, to have been aware of these things that were going on, but to be sort of re-evaluating things about it as an adult when Absolutely. you kind of got the experience you you understand that actually like those things aren't normal to ask someone mm -hmm. it's really not normal mm. to be kind of talking about someone that young in those particular terms and like I mean I I really vividly remember the controversy of that video where she's dressed as a catholic schoolgirl. yeah and then just like this ongoing furore around in particular you know like her being sexual and having sexuality, especially as she grew up. So, you know, you've got that very famous David um, LaChapelle Rolling Stone cover Ugh. that was taken at home in her bedroom in Kenwood, Louisiana, where she's like surrounded by cuddly toys, but she's got like a, 
shirt open and you can see her underwear and everything like that and I just remember like it looks like a playboy cover it kind of does it's really purposeful with what it does mm. so right off the bat she was I think I'd said to you I, I, I did the math and I think she was 17 in that picture mm, mm. which is just insane and, and I've I've often found the older I get the more I like think back I often think it's really interesting and I remember like looking at this when I was at university and I was like studying a lot of texts about adolescence and in particular like female adolescence mm. and there's this like constant push-pull between like you really want like young women to stay chaste but then the minute they get any or or like you but mm-hmm. then you also sort of want them to be like this particular lane of of like chaste and pure and there's like so there was mm-hmm. such a preoccupation around her virginity and because she's from the south as well yeah. you've got all of what that brings you know being a good southern girl but then you kind of want her to be appealing so then that means that she has to kind of like sexualize herself mm-hmm. and sort of like market herself towards a more of a male demographic but then it's not really okay for her to do that because she don't want her to be spoiled but she has to be appealing but mm. not too appealing because she'll get ruined and there is this like constant push pull but you that's not something like I ever got my head around until I was much older and you're mm-hmm. unpicking like all of those things that exist within society and that I mean obviously that's just like that's the patriarchy that's like yeah, misogyny yeah. that's rampant through everything but like it's just mad to kind of have an awareness of like having experienced all of this stuff as like a viewer of someone that's aware of mm-hmm. her and the things that she was doing of like watching her music videos and seeing what she wore at award ceremonies and like doing all of this stuff mm. and it's just it, in the documentary in particular it was really like odd to sort of see and I think it's that's one of those like unfortunate things I think of getting to the age that we are and then like looking back at like key cultural moments yeah which are all on screen and then can be found online in an archive and it's just really odd to kind of just go like oh okay actually yeah it was weird at the time but Mm. like as a whole we'd just kind of ignored it and put but put a lot of the blame on her when actually like yeah she shouldn't have like she shouldn't be in a position where she's having to answer questions about like whether she's a virgin like that's insane it's so weird and as you say like I remember being completely oblivious when I was younger and then getting a bit older and being like, oh, leave Britney alone. If she wants to be sexy, she can be, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to our, you know, my age now and I rewatch those interviews. And as you say, like the blame is firmly placed on her doorstep. Like, why are you upsetting the mothers of this country? Why are you behaving this way? When it's so like... Really, are we supposed to believe that all of this like hypersexualization is of her own engineering? Doesn't she basically say herself that her career is a side hustle and that her main goal is to like you know like have a family and I I don't know it just feels so weird that for some reason like this I I don't know whether it's just the way this documentary is shaped but it really makes it sound like you know people were trying to you know stop Britney from just wanting to be herself because the system hates women that are that you know know their own minds and are autonomous but also like she's just absolutely being just played by the system from day one because they're doing exactly what they want to do with her and she wasn't coming up with like that Rolling Stones cover was she that wasn't her idea so it was just so one of the things that I really took away from it was how many times that she was like on camera kind of personally blamed even as a teenager for appearing the way that she was like it wasn't all manufactured by a marketing team well, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? It's like there's someone from, I think, Jive Records who talks mm. about how, yeah. like, you know, she was coming out at a time when, like, 
boy bands were the thing you mm. know in the states you had like backstreet boys you had nsync you're coming out of like new kids on the block like you've got this entire system that's set up specifically for marketing boy bands to a largely female demographic so to have a female singer come in and try and break that mold it's really really hard and and like so much of what was done to her and her career w- w- was just like marketing yeah so you know while i'm sure that she had a degree of autonomy like not really though like and i, I think it's really interesting that you you mentioned the the way that like everyone reacted to her and the things that she did because when you then come to think about like her relationships with men especially going oh, yeah. forward mm. so with regards to like Justin Timberlake one of the things that like watching this documentary made me realize was like at that time like I was a I really liked NSYNC I was a big Justin Timberlake fan and mm. actually I vividly remember when that Crimea River video came out so after they'd split up quite publicly and she was really heavily shamed for breaking Mm. his heart and having done something wrong and there were so many rumors about whether she cheated on him and all of this crap and he essentially built like that first album cycle is like so constructed around that relationship his solo career is a result of that relationship ending isn't it yeah and i remember that video coming out and i remember being like oh my god it's you know like it's such a dig at britney yeah like the the internalized misogyny of mm. that particular time, I was fully like, oh well, Britney probably deserved it, and like, oh well, yeah, you know, I really like Justin Timberlake, and I think it's a real. I really liked them as a couple. I loved mm. them as a couple. You know, there's that really famous picture of them all in denim. Like, I thought yeah, it was this yeah. like absolute teen dream of two people who'd worked together as kids on the Mickey Mouse Club were now dating, and isn't that amazing? And blah right. blah blah. You know, this amazing romantic. You know childhood sweethearts all that crap but yeah i i still was like when they split up i I was extremely like oh well you know like she probably did it so it's like well the record he's come out loudest to say like oh she did this to me yeah you know it's hinted at heavily in the marketing of this record so you all kind of pile on board with that and go oh yeah yeah like if he's speaking out about it it's obviously that's the case and again like britney was you know accused and asked you know why she's caused justin timberlake so much pain and suffering like it's so ridiculous to watch back it is isn't it and it was really striking to watch those sequences in the documentary where it's the interviews that she had to give and she was being asked and like grilled specifically about like what had happened in that relationship was she sorry did she care what she'd done and it's like like she's done something truly heinous like what are you accusing her of like cheating on him even then you're you're treating her like (laughs) she's murdered someone the only two people that knows the ins and outs of that relationship are justin and britney and for her to essentially like thereafter be vilified aggressively is like mad but Mm. uh, you know i did feel like watching it and kind of having to think back at how I reacted at the time and then like maybe how my relationship towards Britney had adjusted thereafter Mm. it's just horrible it's horrible to realize all of that and actually to sort of tackle head on that like you said his entire career is just essentially off the back of like you know and it's not to say that like he hadn't had his own successes previous to that Mm. but because that first album in particular and all of the stuff that then came after it and the stuff that he would then say in interviews Mm -hmm. and like being a complete bro when someone asked him if he'd taken Britney's virginity and all this shit like so grim it was just it's it's really mad to interrogate it is you're right it's I don't think I'd fully processed how much of that 
relationship was weaponized by him until it's been sort of until it was kind of discussed more recently and of course with the the added context of Janet Jackson as well and the way that her relationship's just absolutely been derailed by something he did as well so it all kind of ties together and really doesn't cast him in a very good light at all Another thing that's addressed in this documentary and is talked about is kind of paparazzi and that, yeah, that very, uh, like the gossip magazine aspect, paparazzi and paparazzi photos, gossip mag aspect of, of Britney's career and talks about the head shaving incident in 2008 and how it became a pivotal part of her career and her persona. And the documentary interviews this guy, Dano, who photographs Spears attacking his car with an umbrella and sort of talks about, at one point he talks about how, you know, he kind of sounds like he feels bad because he says about how, you know, being a paparazzi kind of sucks you in and once you start making good money, you can't really stop yourself. But then he also insists that he had a really great relationship with her and he was also always asking her if she was okay you know, whilst taking photos of her in her car and blocking her way, <laughs> which is, comp- it just, you know, it really does show him up in this interview and makes him look pretty, pretty callous and silly. But I think I wanted to touch on the US Weekly aspect of this, because I know you find this really interesting, mm-hmm. is that Britney's catapult into stardom sort of quite closely coincides with this shift in US Weekly's focus from kind of industry news and reviews to more celebrity gossip. And yeah, just this whole weird thing that we're, you know, we're very, very familiar with of kind of gossip rags and, you know, spending a million pounds on a photograph and Perez Hilton and all of this kind of absolutely mad like celebrity content. Yeah, and I feel like that in particular was the one aspect of the documentary that I found so unbelievably interesting, mm-hmm. if only because I really vividly remember how much she was hounded by mm. the press and how she was 100% like such a victim of that like 2000s rise in celebrity culture. You've got yeah. other people like, I guess, Paris Hilton, you've got Lindsay Lohan as well, mm-hmm. which like make, make an interesting comparison for sort of Britney's trajectory as well. Absolutely. And like, I'd fully embraced that. And and I was, I, I mean, I remember all of that Britney stuff happening in real time. I was like so unbelievably invested in like gossip culture and mm. gossip blogs. Perez Hilton was depressingly my Bible for oh, such yeah. a long period of time. I absolutely rinsed Heat magazine and all of those other things that were available to us here in the UK. There's yeah. a very famous live journal blog called Oh No They Didn't, which yeah. I was a member of and like never posted, but like would read it, like would read the entire thing, reams mm. and reams of pages every day and that was like very much like from the point of probably like the end of my teenage years when I was at college right through to university Mm. the the amount of hours I would waste late at night just reading Perez Hilton and I remember all that Britney stuff happening you know like you've got the the sort of head shaving incident in 2007 I remember when those pictures came online I remember the umbrella photos coming online as well Britney's antics were like so much a part of that so everything that she was going through with Kevin Federline and their marriage and Mm. they're having their children and the decline of that marriage and everything like that it was just like it was there it was covered and I just fully consumed it and it's really interesting to think about the way that like the way that I consume celebrity culture now and the way that I understand that actually it is a it's a cycle really I guess isn't it because I want to I want to know that stuff I have a genuine interest the morbid curiosity in what everyone doing but then because I because there's a demand there you've got the paparazzi and it's the hounding famous people yeah. and, and it was striking to have watched this a couple of weeks after we'd 
talked about that Ben Affleck in particular mm. always comes back to Ben Affleck <laughs> but it was you know one of the things he did a Hollywood Reporter podcast which I think I mentioned in our previous episode and he mentions Us Weekly in that mm. and he says that you know at the time that he was with Jennifer Lopez they were like relentlessly hounded anything they did mm. and she he he really pointedly mentions the fact that like the reaction to her as a woman was awful and then as a, a Latina she was absolutely mm. was so racist mm. and so it was really interesting to have had that at the back of my mind to be thinking about how he'd said the impact of like Us Weekly specifically specifically mm-hmm. had really like undermined their relationship mm-hmm. had made them feel like absolute garbage it was probably something that's affected their relationship with the press ever since so then to have someone from the magazine and have the paparazzi platformed in this documentary to have to try and give their side of the story and neither of them come out of it particularly well at all no no it's really apparent isn't it and as you say like the more this stuff is covered and you know people being like that these magazines are you know so misogynistic and so racist and so many things but the more it's pumped out there and it's so you know it's on all of the shelves in the shops and you know it doesn't cost a lot to get hold of and you become like such passive consumers of it and it becomes so normalized because it is so out there those blogs are like Paris Hilton is a huge blog like I, I was really obsessed with pink as the new blog at the time like all of these things like it is a circle as you say like the more people are kind of consuming it the more it's being normalized and being put out there and people feel like they can justify yeah being paparazzi getting in people's faces and that they're actually you know the good guys because they did always ask her if she was all right despite knowing that she was very clearly not yeah it's just a never ending circle isn't it well it's just they take they take full advantage of of, mm. of those that they're kind of hounding and i think it's it's funny now to think about the way that like celebrities relationships towards the paparazzi and and the way that they're presented in the press has probably changed quite significantly now in that i think it's often used to like celebrities advantages mm-hmm. so there is the you know the quite the notorious idea that actually a lot of paparazzi get called ahead of time setups yeah setups a lot of that because i suppose actually it's like if you know that you're going to get hounded or you know that people want to take your picture because people want to see what you're doing then actually for you to take back control and say like oh if you go to this location at this time then you'll see so and so and so and so at least Mm. at least you've got a bit of control over the situation which is like which is absolutely bizarre in itself because no one deserves famous or not you know like no one deserves to have their every movement tracked and I think Mm. the thing with the way the paparazzi seemed to hound Britney Spears is that she was clearly going through a lot and you can see the like way that the paparazzi probably completely like exacerbated all of the stuff that she was struggling with and exploited it for content but you know it's fine for me to say that now in 2021 but I know full well that in waking up and seeing that like, oh my God, Britney Spears has shaved her head. Holy shit. This is amazing. You know, like that was yeah, my absolutely. reaction. It was like, oh, I hope she's all right. But I, also I'm so glad that I've got all of these pictures to look at. Yeah. Like it's, it's wild. Yeah, it is. And I think we all, like, I don't know anyone who didn't get hooked on that in exactly the same way as you say. It's something that we're all like utterly complicit in and you know, some of us are more complicit than others, but we are, we all share that blame in some part. 
Another thing that's touched on in this documentary is sort of fandom and uh, especially around the Free Britney movement. So the Free Britney movement is like a very devoted part of her fan base who think that Britney is sending secret messages, kind of asking for help, especially through her Instagram, which I think is her only kind of public profile slash presence now and then whenever she goes quiet on Instagram or hell breaks loose and you know fans are very concerned because they think that she's you know yeah she's trapped in this conservatorship with her dad and she's sending these messages as a cry for help so quite a lot of these fans are interviewed in the documentary and there's kind of there's a dual aspect as in you know there's a there's a real level of care and concern and dedication here from these fans which is really admirable and they have received this indication in a court document from Britney that she's aware of the movement and she appreciates it although we don't know to what extent yeah so you've got this fan base who are standing outside courthouses and supporting her and want her to know that she's you know loved and people care and that they know that something's happening to her and it's not being swept under the carpet um you've also got this podcast Britney's Gram which uh, is a weekly podcast which basically discusses and dissects Britney Spears's Instagram posts to a very very detailed degree and I'm not going to dunk on that podcast in particular because I haven't listened to it but it, it is really interesting to feature um, a podcast which dissects the tiny details of Britney's life in a conversation about like paparazzi in the insane world of celebrity. I found it really odd, to be honest. I'll be quite honest. And say it's like I I ca- up- we care loads, but we're also like pulling apart every single word in her Instagram posts. Yeah, I I understand their presence in the podcast, mm. I suppose, because they are particularly focusing on her Instagram. So it mm-hmm. makes sense to have this these two people that spend a lot of time like reading into mm. what's happening on her Instagram. But I did I did think thereafter the more I thought about it I just didn't like they are two fans and they have Britney's best intentions at heart but it does also feel a bit like is she thrilled that you're pulling apart her every single post like that and conspiring about like what it could mean and inventing a kind of narrative I don't know do you know what I mean that's a very pessimistic viewpoint no no no. I feel the same because for me it feels like you're sort of you're on the one hand celebrating the fact that like via this Instagram account she does have some sort of I don't know hold over her own narrative and she obviously seems to be sharing things that she wants to see and and god bless her if you look at some Mm -hmm. of the content on there it's quite clearly not coming from a social media manager so it's nice that she's got an outlet where she can show people Mm -hmm. like actually like I'm doing this like she's got a boyfriend like she's having you know and seemingly from the outside she's having an okay life but then to have these two people on there that are over analyzing every aspect of it that for me just feels almost a little bit like everyone taking pictures of her and then trying to pass judgment on what she's doing with her life for me the the, the line there is 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 slightly being blurred that's just my take on it and I, I you know other people might not feel that's the case and may really enjoy that podcast and overanalyzing something like that but for me it just felt a bit like well you're really blurring the lines here yeah, I completely agree. It's that idea of kind of free Britney, like we want Britney to be able to live her life, let her, you know, have freedom and live her life uninterrupted. But, you know, in order to help her cause, we're going to be engaging in this big, con- you know, this conspiracy, whether it's real or not. This idea that she's like 
you know, all of her Instagram posts are encoded with particular cries for help is just, yeah, it's very strange. I just think you can look for signs everywhere if you want. I've just finished reading an entire book that like focuses on the the idea that like once you've got an idea in your head, you could read it into anything, you know? I don't know. It feels like a bit of a slippery slope, I think, for me. And I know we'll, we'll probably touch on this a bit more in a minute, but, you know, there's, there's things that I send you captions on Instagram that celebrities have posted and we talk about them. But then there's, you know, there's like having those conversations which you're going to end up doing kind of privately and then there's putting it out there in a public sphere I know this sounds ironic given we're on a podcast talking about pop culture but we could talk about that in a minute but do you know what I mean again like trying to pull apart these tiny threads of Britney's life through like very short captions in a very public space she's got an extremely strong fan base and I think that Mm -hmm. comes across in the documentary you know like the entire free Britney movement Uh is like motivated by people who care about her so much and just Mm -hmm. want the best for her and want her to be free and obviously like you know so much of the like Britney mythology it's really impossible to like for me the thing I think about is that Chris Crocker video in 2007 where he's just like shouting and crying like leave Britney alone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that does encapsulate the the way that people mm. feel really fondly for her mm-hmm. and I think it's mm-hmm. because you've watched someone grow up in the public eye you know the struggles that she's had she's clearly not had a good time of mm. it all she's been vilified and demonised and, and tried to live a normal life but people won't leave her alone and she seems to be grappling with a lot so it's understandable that the people that like really love her are like fully going to go to bat for her and mm. it was that that side of things in the documentary I think was like, it was nice to see that actually like mm-hmm. there is this grappling swell movement of people that like feel really strongly about the conservatorship that it shouldn't be happening or that she mm-hmm. wants out and and you know the fact that then later it's cited in the mm. conservatorship mm. like challenge documents and mm-hmm. etc that actually like she acknowledges it she acknowledges yeah. that people are there and she's thankful for the support and at the end of the day you know like who wouldn't want a strong fan base fighting their corner mm. absolutely and yeah, on the topic of the conservatorship, I mean, it's funny that I could spend forever talking about all these other things. And it's actually, you know, it is supposed to be a documentary that sort of centres on this conservatorship. So just to touch on that briefly. So for anyone who's not fully sort of up to speed, Brittany was kind of put under a temporary psychiatric hold in LA in 2008. And following that, her father and her attorney were granted a temporary conservatorship, which means that the court is able to prove that that person is unable to meet their basic needs of kind of feeding themselves, clothing themselves, you know, looking after themselves. So this is something that's generally put in place for people who are very disabled or very elderly. So they lack a certain mental capacity to make decisions for themselves. Um, and that might be kind of financial de- decisions, where they live, what medications they take, you know, lots of key decisions in their life. So there was this temporary conservatorship, which turned into a permanent one in October 2008. And the point that this documentary is making and that the Free Britney movement is is making is that this is a conservatorship that came into place for whatever reason and has been going on for almost you know over 10 years and although we can't talk about Britney's state of mind in 2008 and whether you know it needed to be put in place at the time but she's made it very clear since that this isn't something that she wants held in place by her father in particular so she doesn't want her father to be her conservator and it does seem particularly interesting that she is 
under this conservatorship, the court believes that she's unable to make her basic needs but she was at the same time able to go on and play you know 250 shows at Las Vegas as part of a residency so she can work and drive but apparently she can't do other things like be in charge of her finances so her dad is in yeah in charge of these important things and he's being paid uh, you know he's paying himself through this and the most recent kind of updates are that I think at the end of last year, Britney tried to get this conservatorship removed in terms of, I think it's very difficult to get a conservatorship fully removed because you have to prove a lot of things. And I imagine it's quite rare as well because, you know, if you lack capacity as um, someone who's disabled or very elderly, that situation is probably not going to be reversed. So they don't often have to lift them. But Britney wanted to move this conservatorship onto her bank and that hasn't happened completely but they have granted a co-conservatorship between Jamie and the bank and Jamie has since tried to get rid of this and object to it and the courts as of just over a week ago I think have said no they are the bank is staying as a co-conservator so Britney's said that she's scared of her father and she refuses to perform professionally until he is removed. And I guess, I mean, did you know much about, well, just this entire dynamic and this situation before this documentary? I knew that it was a thing. I knew that her father was in charge of it, but I didn't really know like the ins and outs of it. I hadn't actually thought about like what it meant from like a legal point Mm -hmm. of view that I had no idea actually really that it would be such a mammoth task to get it reversed in any capacity. And I also didn't realise that she had gotten to the stage where she was refusing to basically perform on the basis that she doesn't Mm, want to be in the conservatorship mm. anymore. And Mm. I think for me, it's probably the fact that like around the time that she was placed in the conservatorship, I wasn't necessarily paying a huge amount to the in and outs of it to the like it was more like the oh god Britney Spears has done this and then just like not really no understanding it and I don't think I I just don't think I really understand the nuances of what it was and all of the restrictions and then also hadn't probably given much credence to actually thinking about the fact like well she's obviously done loads after this she's had yeah. a full career she's been busy she's recorded albums she's performed she did an entire Vegas residency like all of this stuff happened while she was on under the conservatorship yeah. and I think that like that was what was quite striking about the documentary itself on the sections where it focuses on this and and its trajectory was like well actually most of the time a conservatorship is 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 placed upon someone that like doesn't have the capacity to do a Mm -hmm. lot of things Mm -hmm. and yet you've got someone that like you know from an outside perspective is very functional very productive is doing all of these things has got a very busy high-powered career like she does like 10 times more than i ever do and yet she's being, she's just being restricted. Like she's under yeah. this, like essentially what seems like this red tape stopping her from really having any real control or because I guess this, the conservatorship was put in place at a particularly tricky time for her because obviously she was taken into psychiatric care because she was unwell. And then essentially that's been it. Like she hasn't yeah. had the ability to actually take back any control. And, and I think one thing that the documentary posits is basically that her main concern and probably rightfully so as a mother is that she wanted to be able to have access to her children and she was being restricted from having 
access to her two kids Mm. and i suppose essentially you know i think it does mention in the documentary that there has to be a level of agreement when you enter into conservatorship yeah Yeah. it's not a case of something it's not a case of it being enforced upon you there has to be a level of feels like there was a a bargaining chip there wasn't there and you wonder it because basically if someone says like oh you can see your kids for more than like Mm. you know two hours but the thing is you have to essentially relinquish control over everything if you're Mm. someone who to that point had basically pivoted to trying to like just spend as much time with her kids and be a mum you're presented with essentially all she wanted to do was just be a mum if someone gives Mm. you that option it's this or that you're gonna go that direction aren't you so you can't you know you can't blame her for actually like finding herself in this situation and it's why it's just so depressing that actually it seems like it's such a mammoth task for her to 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 get back from that yeah it's huge isn't it and it I kind of mentioned to you at the time that I have a brother that's disabled so he's physically disabled and he has learning disabilities and um the topic of his sort of mental capacity comes up quite regularly due to lots of different things and my brother has absolutely no grasp of... Fi- he's very emotionally in tune, but he has no grasp of finances. So he doesn't know the difference between £5 and £50. There are lots of aspects of life that he just absolutely... Do- it's beyond his understanding. He doesn't get it. There are there's some things he understands very well, but I think emotionally he's much more developed than he is in terms of day-to-day care for himself. And he has been deemed completely, um, you know, he has mental capacity. He is responsible for his own bank account and his own money and all of those things, despite the fact that he has these quite big barriers that he's not able to overcome, um, such as understanding finances. But he's still able to have complete control of over his life. And so it's quite striking for me from a kind of personal perspective to see that and know that he's, you know, in the eyes of the law, my parents, for example, have got no legal right to help him, you know, c- control his finances or stop him from, you know, taking out, he could take out bank loans, he could do whatever he wanted, he could gamble, he could do whatever he wanted, and they wouldn't be able to stop him. Fortunately, he's very sensible, so he wouldn't do that. But, you know, in his position, he has full mental capacity. But Britney Spears, as you say, can go on and play 248 shows in Las Vegas, and, you know, is expected to carry on with her career and make money and yet is apparently not allowed to be in control of any aspects of her life still which is truly baffling it's galling it's it's it's, it's, it really is and I guess you would hope that I mean I don't you know this documentary is not going to have any bearing in terms of the law is it like the law's not going to a judge isn't going to care about this documentary but you you wonder or you would hope that maybe some aspect of the public pressure and awareness coming out of this documentary might help in some way. But the other thing, I guess, from that is that I also ended up, this is a slight tangent, but when I was thinking about kind of, you know, oh, what will this documentary do? You know, what will the impact be? What what could it do to help Brittany? You kind of, because she's got no involvement in this documentary, I think they say at the end that they tried to contact her, but they don't even know if the request got through. So she's really got no voice in this documentary either. So it's hard to tell how she'd receive this documentary, whether it's helpful, whether it's just another aspect of her life that is being like overly documented. It's just a, yeah, do you know what I mean? It's kind of, you end up going full circle and going, oh, it's really good that we're drawing attention to this now and that, you know, maybe public pressure can help her out. At the same time, I'm not even exactly 
entirely sure if she wants us to be discussing all of this to this extent. It just, it keeps going round and round. It absolutely does. My two big takeaways from this documentary were that it is very useful to have raised awareness about the nuances and the ins and outs of the conservatorship mm. because I think that most people probably had no real awareness, like knew she was in one but didn't know actually legally what it means. Mm. And, and secondly, I've seen a lot of discussion online since about the fact that actually is this just just the first of you know many chapters that will unfold subsequently regarding Britney Spears and I think I'd seen a very interesting I actually think I saw this on Demois so there we go the irony right I think one of those things I'd seen there was the suggestion that actually maybe Britney is already working on a documentary or that there are other Britney Spears based documentaries in the works because you know it was all very nice having lots of journalists and and photographers and and publishers and legal people talking in this documentary and to have Felicia who was you know her her Mm. assistant for such a significant number of years and I think she was really the the mouthpiece there for Mm. Britney to give Britney's Mm. perspective and she's since said I think people have asked her why she wanted to be involved and I think it's because she wanted to give a humanizing element to mm-hmm. Britney rather than being talked yeah. you know about her career she knows her because she you know they grew up in the same town and she was someone that looked after her at the beginning of her career but it does make me wonder actually you know if there are going to be other people involved in documentaries so maybe her family you know there is no one from her family apart from some footage of an interview mm. that her brother once did there's no mm. one else there so there's not there's nothing from you know Lynn Spitz her mother there's nothing from her sister yeah you know there's there's nothing and it does make yeah. me hope i'm i'm hopeful that more will come out of this and i'm hoping that this has laid the groundwork because i don't mm. think it's definitive like you said really early on when we started having this discussion i think that there was there's definitely like new bits of information in there but if you are someone that like is online and has engaged in any aspect of celebrity mm. culture or, or has any awareness of britney spears life i think actually it's more that it's actually being faced with things that have happened that you are aware yeah. of and having to construct a timeline and interrogate those i don't think mm. it necessarily adds anything new so i wonder if actually it's going to have opened the pandora's box in that sense yeah, I think you're probably right that this documentary in trying to do kind of a, well, I mean, part, you know, part of this documentary is to do a, a good thing and to, quote unquote, help Britney to an extent. But it also is probably triggering another tidal wave of conjecture and scrutiny over her life. And that, you know, we could be facing, yeah, years now of more, well, certainly more um, gossip coming through social media and in magazines and more documentaries. And it's kind of triggered it all over again, hasn't it? There's been lots of discussion online since about, you know, like female agency and autonomy and, and especially like young women and their reactions mm-hmm. to how Britney Spears was treated and you know like a whole avalanche of kind of like think pieces and responses to it and I, th- I imagine that will continue because I think it is a really interesting reframing of like how we do treat young women particularly in the media. And it's worth I guess from our perspective like you know there is a, it's, it's very ironic that we're talking about this on a pop culture podcast that often dissects you know people's lives to an extent or their art to an extent um, and we also talk about Demois and you know like Blind Gossip and all of these websites that are just sort of a new version of those older kind of blogs in a way 
Um, and I guess I kind of mentioned before, we're all complicit in sort of Britney's whole timeline and also, you know, this whole celebrity pop culture world that we exist in. But I still, there was still a lot of value in going back and reevaluating like my own relationship to to Britney's story, especially because a lot of it did happen when I was younger. So yeah, and I think I'm definitely coming at it from a very different viewpoint now, but I'm hoping that I can kind of keep a lot of this in mind. Yeah, going forward. I think it's really interesting to think about the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we do engage in celebrity culture now compare it to how we used to engage in it in the past now that's mm-hmm. something that I continually think about and continually reevaluate on a regular mm-hmm. basis and mm-hmm. I think particularly for me in the pandemic so in the pandemic arena and since last year and and actually you know finding that like you know you're suddenly presented with a world where like actually famous people can't really do anything for a while mm-hmm. and then they do start doing things and then you become like, I mean, I just think from a personal point of view, my attitude towards celebrity and celebrity culture just shifted quite a lot because I began mm. to get like quite resentful about famous people just flouting oh, yeah. rules and things mm-hmm. and then like would feel bad about the fact that actually I'd gone months and months and months of like not caring about what celebrities doing because there are quite frankly bigger things going on but then you're like given a scrap you're given a scrap <laughs> yeah. of like someone doing something and you're immediately like oh my Ben God, Affleck with his Dunkin Donuts Woo! you're immediately you know like sucked back in again and I think it's really important to have an awareness of it like for me it's mm. particularly you know like I love that stuff I love reading about I have always Mm. enjoyed reading about it but it's just about you know having an awareness and actually interrogating it and kind of going like oh well I'm just not gonna like I there are particular outlets now that I like absolutely don't want to read and Mm -hmm. don't want to have anything to do with today is actually the only exception when I was prepping for the Kanye and Kim related section I had to go on TMZ because Mm -hmm. they were the people that broke it and I just wanted the particular word yeah Yeah. I absolutely detest Mm. them I just don't have anything to do with them I just don't like when whenever we're doing research for this podcast I have the particular places that I like to go to because I consider them reputable and not like absolute trash for me it's this constant evaluation and this documentary just really kind of helped me process all of that mm-hmm. and it just the timing of it felt very very interesting and the things that it was presenting were very interesting in that sense yeah and I also think that some of the ways that we do maybe get that kind of celebrity news and discussion now through things like Demois I think we will get to a point with some of those platforms where they might cross you know, turn into something slightly different or they might cross some sort of boundary or they will change in some way where we will both go like, okay, no, now this isn't this isn't something that we want to be involved with anymore. Do you know what I mean? No, I do. I, I already feel like my relationship towards that particular outlet is already shifting. In the it's, it shifts over time, doesn't it? And I think yeah. the way things begin aren't the way. <laughs> it won't stay the same. So I think things will change and then we'll probably drop that and pick up some something else and you know it's interesting a lot of it comes through social media now and I mean you mentioned that some aspects have changed in terms of the way that I think celebrities themselves are more savvy about paparazzi now but there are certainly you know with TikTok and all kinds of things that I can't even I can't even comprehend to be honest at this point it's like a never-ending never-ending cycle but that for me they're shifting attitudes towards like paparazzi and how they're perceived mm. in the press is just like that feels like they're having to adapt because if mm-hmm. they don't they know that it could get 
quite horrific. Do you know what I mean? I like, that's right, what it yeah. feels like. It's like, well, either I take the bull by the horns or they're going to come after me. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll put a pin in it there because otherwise we might go on forever. But um, if you have watched Framing Britney, let us know what you thought of the documentary. And if you haven't, especially if you're in the UK, make sure you check it out soon because I believe it's streaming on certain platforms but might not be doing so for very long. As with these things, they tend to go away or get pulled away after a while. So make sure you catch it soon. And I will just end on Michael Moore. Can you believe that this documentary of everything, the voice of reason is Michael fucking Moore, who said, why don't we just leave her alone and let her get on with her life? I was really hoping that you were going to bring Can't that argue up. with Mr. Moore, can you? You just can't argue with it. He was wrong about Marilyn Manson, but it was right about <laughs> Britney Spears. So as we're coming to the end, what is your obsession of the week, please? My obsession of the week, it's a Wednesday. What is my obsession of the week? One's quite boring. Both are boring, actually. Uh, I've been re-watching Buffy, as I mentioned before. That is my now, my, now my lunchtime slash immediately after work lying under the duvet comfort watch. And it's been quite glorious, especially in the past month. February felt quite grim for me personally. And I was feeling really down in the dumps. So meeting up with Scooby Gang has been really, really lovely. And I've honestly found it even funnier watching now than I did even a few years ago. Like I don't know. I'm just finding it absolutely hilarious. Some of the, the scripts is just oh, it's so good. Also, I've unfortunately got really into buying jam donuts from Morrison's and I keep eating them like packs of five so when you next see me in person I might have changed a bit physically because I can't stop eating donuts and then lying in bed and watching Buffy so that's where my um, frame of mind is at the moment what about you? I haven't written anything down so I'm just going to go completely on the fly my first thing is that I started watching The Mandalorian oh god (gasps) can we discuss the yeah so I absolutely didn't want to start watching The Mandalorian I think I was quite mouthy on the internet about the prospect of you were right gobby shy about it i was like i'm never gonna watch the mandalorian you've all ruined it for me and then i unfortunately subscribed to disney plus because i am marvel's bitch Bitch. at this stage um and i like can't not have access to it for my own benefit i need need to ruin my own algorithm rather than someone else's (laughs) and i was like oh well i might as well just start watching the mandalorian i think i started watching it the weekend because i was like sad and had nothing else to do (laughs) so i was like oh i'll watch it and then i watched two episodes of it and i was like i hate that i'm invested in this (laughs) and i just i didn't want to become a person that gives a shit about baby yoda but unfortunately i'm a person that gives a shit about baby yoda now the thing with this is that you told me that you were watching the mandalorian but you had not told me and you clearly deliberately held it back from me you didn't we didn't have any baby yoda conversations and i was like it's fine she's watching the mandalorian i've watched some of it you know she's clearly this is april she is immune to the marketing gimmick that is baby yoda And then I went on Amazon the other day um, to watch something on Prime. I think I was actually going to watch... I know it was Lost. I was going to go and watch Lost Lost with you. We were watching Lost. And I happened to share your... Let's say share. Piggyback on your Amazon Prime account because you're very kind. So I went to go and tune into Lost. And on the homepage under Recently Viewed was a Baby Yoda plush toy. 
It wasn't a plush toy. I think you'll find it was a two-pack of figurines, which I didn't buy. A two-pack? So not even a single two-pack. So two-pack of figurines. They only come in twos. I screenshot it and sent it to you and was like, what in the fuck? I cannot believe you've fallen for this. A gimmick. I just... I'm only human. My defences are very low at the moment. I've had an extremely rough few weeks. I like buying crap. So I just happened to have a look to see how expensive they were and whether they were available to me. I have not purchased them. Yet. But... When your birthday rolls around, you're going to get so much Baby Yoda stuff. I don't want any, though. Like, I just... Those particular figurines were, like, pretty cute. If I came into your house in 2025 and... um, Because it's not going to be any time soon and saw those on your bookshelf, I just don't know what I'd do. You've changed so much. This pandemic has changed you. <laughs> this pandemic has really made me into such a different person. It's really so fucked us over, hasn't it? So I've been watching Mandalorian. I'm invested in Baby Yoda. And oh, a, 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 like breaking news things, two exciting things that happened, which I'm already quite obsessed with. Are the fact that David Fincher has announced that he's doing a new film with the screenwriter who wrote Seven. And it, Michael Fassbender might be in it. Michael he's coming Fassbender. back. Booked and busy. He's coming back. 2010 me is pumped for this. It's going to be his year. Also, Ryan Gosling announced a new project and it's set in the 1950s, which means like Ryan Gosling will probably wear some nice Side parting. Yeah, so that's good, isn't it? Lovely. People are booked and busy and I like Baby Yoda now. (laughs) Fuck's sake. So that's us done. You can find us online on all of the podcast places that you could possibly look for us. That includes Podbean and Apple Podcasts. You can find us there by searching The Thirst. We're Instagram at The Thirst Pod. Our blog is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. And you can also find us on Facebook by having a search as well. Bye. Catch you soon.